Today's episode of the Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Thermo Fisher Scientific, offering innovative Gibco solutions to support your stem cell research workflow. to episode 62, Forever Young. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, guys, so before we do anything today, we have a great show, but before we do anything, I think we need to start with a, an enormous thank you and farewell to our, our partner, Dr. Yosef Gannat. Now, Yosef helped us build this show, and I'm sure everyone out there is going to miss him as much as I will. And so uh, everyone, thank along with me. Let's give a big thank you to Yost. Thanks, man. We really appreciate it. We love you, brother. Now, as sad as that is, trust me, I am a firm believer that, you know, crappy things must happen in life in order to improve. And so that's exactly what we're going to do. We're, we're going to really try to improve and get better from this. This experience has taught us that this show, this podcast is bigger than the host's. And, you know, thousands of people rely on this content that we provide every two weeks. And Yosef and I put too much into this show just to let it go down and disappear. So I promise you all that the podcast will go on and it will be bigger and better than ever before. Now, but in saying that, we did lose our host. And so we're going to go through a transition and we're going to need a little time to do that. And so just like a lot of podcasts and many series and, you know, HBO series and things like this, we're going to need to take a short break for some time so we can retool, transition, find some new hosts and regroup. And don't worry, it's not going to be too long and we don't have a definitive timetable yet. But uh, what I want you guys to know is that during the time the audio portion of the podcast will be down, there are still ways you can interact with us and get your stem cell podcast fixed. So I'm going to go through a couple ways you guys can do that. And we really hope that you'll uh, maintain your interaction with us until we relaunch the show uh, podcast 2.0. So we're going to still do a science roundup every two weeks, just like normal on the same schedule. But rather than it coming out on audio, we're going to post it to our website. It'll most likely be on our blog section. We haven't really gotten the logistics down. But we're going to be updating you guys constantly, all right? So you're going to want to sign up for Stem Cell Chat at StemCellChat.com so you guys can continue the discussions. Like I said, we're going to be sending out a lot of updates. And the best way to get those updates about the show, you know, who are the new hosts, when are we back, info about the roundup and all that. So these are the two best ways. Subscribe to our mailing list, and that's at StemCellPodcast.com. And on Twitter, follow us on Twitter, at Stem Cell Podcast. That's going to be the most active, giving you know the most uh, current updates as they're happening. So please make sure you check that out. You can use this downtime to catch up on previous episodes. You can get them on iTunes and Stitcher and StemCellPodcast.com. You can always send us your emails to tell us how much you miss us, StemCellPodcast at gmail.com. And if you're not already, subscribe to the podcast. If you subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher, and you keep it there in your subscriptions, as soon as the new episode comes out, it'll push to your phone. So if you're not following the updates, you'll know the podcast is back because you get it pushed out. And so the last thing I'm saying, you know, we're, we're in the process right now of, of, you know, interviewing and talking to potential hosts of the show. And we really, we have some really promising candidates. I think you guys are going to love, but if there's anyone out there that thinks they have what it takes to co-host or guest host the stem cell podcast, or they know someone that would, Hey, this is your shot. Email us at stemcellpodcast.gmail.com. And, you know, who knows? Maybe you could, uh, maybe it'll be you on the relaunch. So, uh, you know, we will miss you guys. But like I said, it's my 100% promise we'll be back and better than ever. So I want you to stay tuned, stay engaged, follow us on, on social media and online, and we'll be back and better than ever. All right. So now, 
without further ado, let's get into episode 62, Forever Young. The Forever Young is really fitting for our guest today. And our guest today is Dr. Aubrey de Grey. Well, we didn't meet Aubrey. We came across Aubrey. I've heard about him just, you know, in the in, in the literature and the news. He's been doing many different interviews all around. And he was at the World Stem Cell Summit. And we thought it'd be fantastic to have him on. He's a biomedical gerontologist and he studies aging. And he's of the firm belief that one day human beings will celebrate their 1,000th birthday. I know, right? I mean, I'm thinking like, dude, what, what is that going to be like, you know? And I was thinking, too, if you have a thousand birthdays and you have to get a gift every birthday, like where are we putting all these gifts, especially for kids? I have a three-year-old and my house is already full of crap. How many thousands of of birthday presents am I going to need? But anyway, the the concept of living forever, everybody talks about. But Dr. DeGray really feels that it's imminent, that it's going to happen, that people will become a point where we will live forever. And he's identified different mechanisms of aging that are realistic to target to help us achieve that. So uh, again, we are the Stem Cell Podcast presented by Thermo Fisher. Go to stemcellpodcast.com and click on the banner and check everything out there. So with um, what I'm going to do today, while it's just me, I'm going to give you the roundup and I will start with the uh, science roundup and then I'll get into the uh, stem cell portion just the same. So we're going to start that now. The science roundup is sponsored by Biotechni. Biotechni brings together the prestigious life science research brands that I'm sure everyone out there doing research knows. They've heard of R&D Systems and Novus Bio, Biological and Tokris Protein Simple, and they provide stem cell researchers with high-quality reagents that will optimize and standardize their workflow, something that I know everyone wants to do. If you want more information about Biotechnies products, go to stemcellpodcast.com and click on the banner. I will now kick off the roundup. Some of these are actually really, really cool. Um, this is fun for me to actually, you know, Yosef was going through the science stuff, but I got to go through it. So it's fun for me. I got to kind of engage more in the breadth of science. So there was a recent finding report at the annual meeting of Society for Neuroscience. If anyone's ever gone, it's a, it's like a disastrous like mesh of people, 30,000 scientists in one place. I was in Chicago this year. So this report showed that a common stress hormone triggers different responses in specific brain cells of male and female animals. So the differences make females less able than males to adapt to chronic stress. So I guess scientists have long known that women are more likely than men to suffer depression, which I didn't know, by the way, and post-traumatic stress disorder and other anxiety disorders, all of which have been linked to chronic stress. And this is from uh, Temple University psychologist Deborah Bengasser. But I guess until recently, studies of people's response to, to such stress have focused primarily on men. I don't know why. Maybe it's their perception that men are always stressed out. Uh, So now a growing number of scientists are studying what happens at the cellular and genetic levels in the brains of stressed out rodents, you know, mice and rats, male and female, to kind of gain insight into the human brain. And the studies are beginning to reveal differences between the sexes that can help explain the variability in their reactions and perhaps even provide uh, needed, you know, insight into why stress-related disorders are more common in women than men. So... I need everybody out there to help me do this because we don't have we don't have our partner in crime to do this. All right. This is from our favorite journal. I'm going to say it. What's our favorite journal, everybody? That's right. PNAS. So there was a PNAS study where uh, researchers identified four lineages of microscopic, I'm going to say this word here, Demodex folliculorum. And what those are, those are mites, like little, those little tiny bugs living on the foreheads of volunteers. It was something like 70 or 75 volunteers. Why this study is initiated, I have no idea. But anyway, what they found, people with, they found that people with different geographical ancestry hosted different mixes of mites. So like depending on where you're from, the mites were different. So for example, participants of Asian and European descent harbored you know, fewer types of mites than people with Latin American, African ancestry. So the differences, they say, probably reflect the historical patterns of human migration. So within families, parents and adult children tended to share mites with similar genes. So indicating that these, these mites are spread by close physical contact. And so mice have evolved alongside their hosts for millions of years. And the researchers suggest these facial occupants could be used to study the global travels of ancient humans. Man, who would ever know if you, you know, how do we know where humans have traveled? Check the mites on their forehead. We all heard the expression, no pain, no gain, right? Well, now they're saying this might be true in terms of memory. 
So a full year after viewing a picture of some random object, people could remember it much better if they had a feeling pain of, you know, if they had been feeling painful heat when they first saw it. So they had a better chance of remembering if they were experiencing pain when they first saw that random object. So neuroscientists G. Elliott Wimmer and Christian Buchel of the University Medical Center of Hamburg, Eppendorf in Germany they reported these pa- the results paper online at biorxiv.org. I guess their paper is in review. This is cool. They recruited 31 people. And I don't know. Imagine trying to get recruited for this. They recruited 31 people who agreed to feel pain delivered by a heat delivering thermode on their left forearm. So they said, look, we need to basically burn your forearm uh, while you look at an object. So, you know, they calibrated their pain sensitivity. And then while undergoing a functional MRI scan, they looked at a series of pictures of some random household objects like like camera or something. And so, they, you know, they did. They observed them looking at this object, feeling pain and sometimes not. So right after they saw the images, they took a quiz, uh, you know, and they answered whether an object was familiar and pain didn't really have any influence. But I guess a year later, the pain group was like remarkably better at remembering it. So if you if you viewed the pain on the scale of eight, so a really serious pain, you are much likely to remember remember the object. So pain I guess you can remember things better. I don't know really what the implication is. I'm just thinking like if I really wanted to remember something, should I be injuring myself at the same time or something like that? I have no idea. But anyway, uh, no pain, no gain. And the gain here is uh, memory. This is out of Immunity Cell Press Journal. It was a study that showed how gene signatures, genetic signatures can distinguish viral from bacteria infections, which I found to be very cool and obviously has a lot of very important implications. We all know that we get coughs, you know, or fever, or cold. We get this green mucus, and they, they can accompany an infection. But when we go to the doctor, most of the doctors, they don't really know what kind of infection it is. Is it viral? Is it an antibiotic? And unfortunately, a lot of doctors prescribe an antibiotic just in case, you know, oh, just in case it's bacteria, which is obviously not good practice because that's how we get resistant bacteria and all these things. So this study hopefully will help in that regard. You know, as you are aware, I'm sure an infection can change our gene expression profile. And that response apparently differs depending on whether it's a bacteria or virus doing the damage, which is really the crux of the study. And this distinction could ultimately help doctors figure out if a patient needs antibiotics or antivirals or just rest or something like that. The authors claim this to be a very robust response. So a genetic signature that can distinguish between viral and bacterial infections that's in immunity. This was really, really interesting. I've often really wondered what it's like living in ancient Rome. I don't know if anyone out there has this, you know, as well. You watch a gladiator and these things and you're like, man, what was it like living in those times? Well, I thought about what it's like. I've never really thought about how well the toilets worked in ancient Rome and how efficient they were at removing feces and parasites. But luckily for us, Pierce Mitchell has looked in depth into this and has published his findings in the Journal of Parasitology. So Mitchell looked at parasite numbers from latrine archaeological sites. I didn't even know that such things exist. In mummified remains and in fossilized feces. Yeah, fossilized feces. So he looked at these before and after the implementation of, I guess, Rome's kind of hygiene projects, you know, to install better hygiene. And the data suggested that roundworms and other parasites that spread through contact with feces maintain their numbers despite the sanitation efforts, perhaps because Romans used human feces to fertilize their crops and rarely changed the water at some public bathhouses. And so really, this is just a report on what was like kind of pre and post, you know, hygiene efforts in ancient Rome and by looking at these feces and things like this. Uh, So if you're interested in fossilized feces, check this out. Okay, this came out of the, let's see, the Human Health Services and Agriculture Department of Human Health. I, for anyone who works out at the gym, they know that after January 1st, there's like this influx of new members at the gym. And I guess sort of coincide with the new year, the Department of Health released its new guidelines, um, you know, healthy eating patterns. You know, some of them don't really look different. There was a couple major changes from the last time. They come out every five years and, you know, they tell you eat your beans, limit sat fat and added sugars. One major change is instead of cholesterol restriction, the new recommendation is to eat as little dietary cholesterol as possible. They shifted their focus this year to rather than emphasizing specific food groups, you know, like whole grain, they targeted eating patterns, you know, everything a person eats and drinks over time. So watch all your choices. And they do give some numeric guidelines. So if you want to go check that out, we'll put the link up. And lastly, there was a Huffington Post article I was reading. 
It says the nine science-backed steps to have the best sleep of your life. And I'm always interested in learning about how to get better sleep. So they list their nine. I could run through them quick. Skip the snooze button. You know, people that over-snooze, no good. Open your blinds right away in the morning. I guess you need to reset your melatonin. So as soon as you wake up, let light in. Let's see here. I'll skip some. Power down your devices. It says you should power down your media devices before two hours before bed. So getting into bed and flipping through your phone or your iPad is working against your your being able to go to sleep. Take a hot bath. And one of the last ones was to keep your room cool, which I love to do. I don't like sleeping in a hot room. This says the ideal temperature is 65 degrees, which is kind of cool. But like I said, I'm more in the camp of staying cool while I sleep. All right, so that was the the breath of science. Now let me move into the uh, stem cell portion. Again, we're the Stem Cell Podcast presented by Thermo Fisher. So let's get into now the science roundup, the biotechny science roundup stem cell portion. All right. We talked about this a little bit last time. The stem cell incorporated out there out west was going through some changes. And so here um, I read that the stem cell uh, incorporated uh, named a new CEO. They announced that Dr. Ian Massey, its president and chief operating officer, has been appointed by the board of directors to succeed Martin McGlynn as the company's CEO. That will be effective the 18th of January. Massey has additionally been elected to the board. So they've been working together, Massey and McGlynn, since March. And they're going to, you know, continue their focus on using the proprietary HU, the human CNS stem cells, that technology for the treatment of chronic spinal cord injury. So they're going to continue their efforts and hope to push everything forward. This is a new study in Nature Cell Biology. Protein biomarker confirms the presence of stem cells that maintains ovaries. So this study showed their stem cell activity in the outer lining of the ovary, and this was by these uh, A-star researchers, and they said they will elucidate normal ovarian activity and offer insights into the origins of disease. Here's a stat that I did not know. Ovarian cancer kills more than 150,000 women globally each year, but the events that behind it, you know, the etiology, I guess, is unclear. So this is a quote from Nick Barker of the team. We need to understand the normal cell biology of the ovary before we can begin to understand what goes wrong during cancer. So his team studied the regeneration and repair of the surface layer, which we call the epithelium of the ovary and fallopian tube. And during ovulation, this, this layer of cells undergoes repeated cycles of tearing and sub- subsequent repair. And little is known about that mechanism of how that works. And I guess resident stem cells now drive to this, such tissue maintenance activities in many epithelial layers throughout the body, which he explains. Uh, but similar stem cells have n- never really been proven to exist in the ovary. And their most recent work identified this protein LGR5 on cells of the ovaries and fallopian tubes of mice, which confirm the presence and activity of resident stem cells that can maintain the ovary epithelium. So basically, you get this turnover of the ovary, that kind of tear and repair. And they have evidence to suggest now that uh, that's mediated by stem cells. So that's pretty cool. That's in Nature Cell Bio. Define three-dimensional microenvironments boost induction of pluripotency. This is in Nature Materials. Now, we know that chemical factors can induce stem cells from adult cells, right? We call that induced pluripotent stem cells, IPS cells. So in this study, what scientists did is they investigated how placing these adult cells, which we reprogram, by putting them in a 3D environment, how does that influence stem cell formation? So scientists based at the Ecole Polytech Federale de Lausanne have been engineering 3D or three-dimensional extracellular matrices that kind of boost the ability of normal cells to revert into stem cells by, by really, they like squeeze them. They basically like wrap them up and give them a hug. So they found that, the, that this physical confinement imposed by this environment boosts reprogramming through an accelerated, the ever-famous mesenchymal to epithelial transition, and it increases epigenetic remodeling. And so their conclusion is that this 3D environment signals kind of act synergistically with reprogramming, with the transcription factors that reprogram to kind of increase the somatic plasticity. It increases the efficiency of IPS. All right. So this was, I saw this release, engineered stem cells may help in ALS. So stem cells engineered to secrete growth factor, NTF, neurotrophic growth factor, may slow the progression of ALS or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. And these are early results uh, suggesting... In an analysis of data from a combined phase 1, 2, and 2A study, ALS patients who had NTF-producing mesenchymal stem cells delivered intrathecally or directly into the spinal cord, that's what that means, had slow disease progression when comparing scores before and after transplant. This is a report from uh, Demetrius Carusis of the Hadassah Medical Center in Jerusalem. 
and his colleagues that reported in JAMA, 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 JAMA Neurology. And I guess to their knowledge, this is the first human experience with stem cells that have induced under culture conditions to produce this growth factor. So promising for this kind of study, this kind of treatment for ALS. Okay, let's see here. What else I got? I got slow stem cell divisions may cause small brains. Okay, so this is at a Duke. Duke University researchers have figured out how developmental disease called microcephaly, and microcephaly is really just small brain. It's a smaller brain than normal. You know, how, how this microcephaly can produce a small brain, and it really kind of makes sense. They say that some cells are just too slow as they proceed through development. So this was published on January 7th in the journal Neuron. So they provide not only this mechanistic explanation for this disease microcephaly, but they could also aid in understanding of autism or these other neurodevelopmental disorders that are thought to arise from disruptions in proper brain, you know, the proper balance of neurons in the brain. So I guess it was back in 2002, this group discovered that mice missing a single copy of a gene called MAGO or MAGO, M-A-G-O-H, have severely reduced brain size, reminiscent of genetic microcephaly in people. And at the time, they didn't really know why. All right. So then the group kind of zeroed in on neural stem cells from this MAGO deficient brains, which divide to form either a new stem cell or the beginning of a new neuron cell. Okay. And so what they, in this new study, because they found that, you know, that kind of gene, when you lost that gene in the neural stem cell, it, it kind of causes that balance to go out of whack, that divisional balance of producing a stem cell on neurons. So in this new study, they, they found that 30% of stem cells in the mice lacking this MAGO gene took a lot longer to divide. And in some cases, two or three times longer than usual. So you got a really slow dividing cell. You can imagine in development, if you're really slow, then your resulting brain, if you're because development still proceeds at the same rate, but if the cells are going much slower, your brain's going to be that much smaller. And so that's really the conclusion that they've made. And that was in the journal Neuron. Okay. So the last one I'll finish off with is in, um, this was in Nature Communications, Genetically Engineering self-organization of human pluripotent stem cells into a liver bud-like tissue using GATA6. I'll get to GATA6 in a second. So we know that these human iPS cells have this potential for personalized and regen med, regenerative medicine. And while most of the methods using these cells have focused on kind of deriving homogenous populations of specialized cells, there has been some success in producing these human iPS-derived organic typic tissues or organoids. You know, we talked about this on the show. Organoids, they're more of like a 3D type uh, tissue, cellular kind of... I don't, want, I don't want to give the illusion that you're creating the organ in the dish, but it's, it's more of a 3D structure that's reminiscent of an organ. They call them organoids. So here they present a novel approach for generating and then co-differentiating these uh, IPS-derived progenitors. They use a genetically engineered pulse of GATA6 expression. So GATA6 is a very important transcription factor. So, so the, what they're doing here is they're basically pulsing expression of this gene in the iPS cells. And that initiates a rapid emergence of all three germ layers as a complex function of this expression. So within two weeks, they obtain a complex tissue that can recapitulate early developmental process and exhibit a liver bud-like phenotype. And that includes this hematopoietic and stromal cells as well as a neuronal niche. So collectively... They say that their approach demonstrates derivation of complex tissues from human iPSCs using a single autologous kind of iPS as a source and generates a range of stromal cells that co-develop with other cells to form tissues. So that's it for the roundup portion of the show today. And I think what we will do is get into the interview portion of the show. And so before we do that, we want to let you know that the interview portion of the Stem Cell Podcast is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. We talked about it last time. Stem Cell Technologies has put together a lot of these cool infographics. When you're working with pluripotent stem cells, there's so many different things and decisions and reagents you can do and use. And trying to figure out which one to use or what to do is confusing. So they have created these infographics to make it easier for you to understand and follow. It's like a kind of a flow chart. Check them out. Go to stemcell.com slash go PSC, PSC being pluripotent stem cells. So stemcell.com slash go PSC. You can also go to stemcellpodcast.com and check out our banner there. You can click on it and take you right there. So stemcell.com slash go PSC. Okay, so we will now move to the interview portion of the show. Okay, so today we have a really uh, great guest. Our guest for the Stem Cell Podcast is Dr. Aubrey DeGray. So I'm going to give a brief intro and then we'll... Uh, begin our uh, conversation. So 
Dr. DeGray is an author and a biomedical gerontologist. We'll get into that in a second. He's currently the chief science officer of the SENS, S-E-N-S, Research Foundation. And he's known for his view that medical technology actually may enable human beings alive today be helped them to live indefinitely, which I'm sure a lot of people out there would love to hear. His research focuses, and we'll talk about this a little bit in brief, on whether RegenMed or regenerative medicine can prevent the aging process. And um, he's identified different types of molecular and cellular damage caused by metabolic processes that might be causes or involved in aging. And then has proposed a panel of therapies, the SENS, the strategy for engineered negligible senescence, to basically help repair this design to repair this damage. Now, he's been interviewed in recent years on a number of news sources. You've probably seen him on CBS, BBC, gave a TED Talk some years back, uh, the Colbert Report, etc. And now he can add the wonderful stem cell podcast to that list. And so without further ado, Dr. Aubrey DeGray, welcome to the stem cell podcast. Thanks for having me on the show. No problem. So what I want to do just to set this up and to have a little bit of fun here, I thought I would start with three true false questions. So I'm going to ask them to you and then we'll, we'll have that kind of guide guide the the question. So I'll start with the number one. So Benjamin Franklin once said that only two things are inevitable, taxes and death. So the true false question, is death an inevitable fate of all human beings? Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to go with true. Because it's hard to do true false there, right? There are an awful lot of things that can kill us. Okay, true. You know, even if it's only the heat death of the universe, it's probable that we're going to die. So true. Okay, that, that, that seems fairly fair, maybe an obvious one. Number two, aging is the world's biggest problem. True or false? That's definitely true. Definitely true. It definitely causes the greatest amount of suffering, more, than anything, more suffering than anything else. And that's how I define the size of the problem. All right, good. And I want to come back to that because I think that's an important statement. And I think that's a really important thing for our audience to, to have some discussion on. So we'll come back to that. And number three, and this is kind of a fun question, and I'm curious to hear the answer. Excluding some sort of cataclysmic major natural disaster, at some point, will human beings celebrate their 1,000th birthday? True or false? Definitely true. True. Definitely true. All right. That's what I wanted to hear. Okay. So let's start with this idea that death is the world's biggest problem, because I really, I really like this, and I feel it to be true. And not only that, I feel as as you age, we start thinking about aging and dying, and that probably ages us and makes us more sick because it's causing this anxiety of this death. So I feel like there's the problem of death, the problem of aging, and the mental toll. So I would just like you to elaborate for our audience on this idea that death is actually the biggest problem we face today in the world. All right, so you're already confusing death with aging, which is something that I try to stop journalists from doing. As I said, it's aging that causes suffering. Death doesn't cause nearly so much suffering as aging does. You know, I think that the suffering that is caused by aging is suffering experienced by the people who are aging as they become increasingly debilitated and diseased and so on, as well as by the people who are around them, their loved ones. And sure, the loved ones experience suffering when somebody dies as well, but it's relatively brief in general compared to the amount of suffering that people experience when their mother has Alzheimer's disease or whatever. So for me, it's all about aging. Death is, aging. Yeah, death is a bad thing for sure. Of course. Of and course. it's a good thing that the more we develop medical control over aging, the less death there will be. But I focus on aging, not on death. So aging is the world's biggest problem. That's my fault. I put the wrong word. Age, it's a, that's an important there. Uh, aging is the world's biggest problem. Go ahead. So, I mean, well, that's it, really. I've just explained why I think it's true that, um, you know, the suffering and misery and disease and debilitation and general, you know, dependence um, that causes aging, sorry, that accompanies aging is enormously bad. And, you know, there are an awful lot of other things that cause suffering, but that's the biggest one. Is it just because people don't tie aging to something as a tangible disease or disorder? Is that is that why people might not? I feel that a lot of people don't uh, believe, not necessarily believe that statement, but share that statement. Is it just because when we think of a, a big problem or, or something, we tend to say, you know, disease or, or, or something tangible as, a, as, a, as something you get sick or disease? Do, is it just that in, in your world, when you come across people in this, is it that we don't consider aging to be some sort of disease or, or, or something that way? Yes, it is. It's exactly that. 
I mean, of course, whether one actually calls aging a disease or not is a question of semantics, terminology. But certainly it's a medical problem. It's something that causes people to function less well, both physically and mentally. And therefore, it is a, a kind of uber disease, if you like. It's a, it's a phenomenon that incorporates all of the diseases of old age, as well as all the aspects of age-related ill health that we don't necessarily call diseases, like declining the immune system or um, you know, loss of muscle mass, things like that. Yeah, so, yeah, that, that's really the, the main problem. People have become so fatalistic and certain that aging is a fact of life and always will be, and that the defeat of aging is akin to the development of perpetual motion. They've made their peace with it and somehow put it out of their minds. And, of course, terminology is often the, way, the most effective way for people to do that. But it doesn't mean that the opinion is in any way rational. So here's a question that I that I find to be interesting. Why do we age? You know, so I don't know. Maybe I give the human the humans and the human body too much credit. I tend to do that as a scientist, but I imagine that if something is happening to us, it's happening for a reason. I don't know if this is a correct way to approach, but if aging is a is the and I'm using air quotes the normal process of life. Is there something good evolutionary about aging that's supposed to happen? We're going to talk about what happens in aging and how we can prevent it, but why do we age? Okay, so that's a great question. There has been something of a debate over the years with regard to whether aging is a product of evolutionary intent or simply a product of evolutionary neglect. In other words, evolution doesn't actually want us to age, but it doesn't care enough. It, it doesn't want us not to age badly enough to actually do anything about it. And the overwhelming majority opinion now is on the latter side that aging is a consequence of evolutionary neglect. In other words, that really aging of a living organism, including a human being, is no different than aging of an inanimate object like a car or an aeroplane. You know, there's no cars are not designed to deliberately age. They're just designed with a certain degree of anti-aging resilience that determines roughly how long they will be able to keep going before the doors fall off. So can we, in, in, in a certain aspect, can we describe or can you describe to us really, I mean, I know there's so many different cellular and all these molecular mechanisms, but what happens to us when we age? I mean, if someone was to ask you, you know, when I get a, when I age, I look at myself in the mirror and I look older, right? I mean, that would be their definition of aging. But really, what happens during aging? Could you kind of sum that up? Because I will want to talk a little bit about the research and what the approach there is on how, how you and your team are working to kind of counteract uh, aging. Yeah, sure. So um, aging of a living organism is certainly a very complicated phenomenon. No surprise, because living organisms are complicated machines. So there are lots and lots of different types of microscopic damage that accumulate throughout life as side effects of the body's normal operation. And so it's, it's still side effects of the body's normal operation, same as it is for a car or whatever, but there are a lot of them. The good news, though, is that it seems pretty certain at this point that all of the things that accumulate, the changes that accumulate throughout life and that eventually contribute to the decline in functionality, to the ill health of old age, all of those things can be actually classified into a very manageable number of categories, just seven categories. These are broad categories, of course, but they are useful categories in, in, for, for one big reason, namely that within each category, there is a generic approach to therapy to actually repairing the damage that can be applied with only changes in the details to each example within the category. So yeah, there's just seven major categories. I could list them now if you like, or you want to come to that later. Sure. No, well, let's, let's do that because I want, that's a good transition into the approach on how to counteract. Sure. Okay. So the seven major types of damage are as follows. There are three at the cellular level in terms of how many cells we have of a particular type, and there are four at the molecular level. Okay. So the cellular ones, first of all, you can just have too few cells of a particular type. That happens when cells die and they are not automatically replaced by the division of other cells. And an example of, uh, of aging that is mainly driven by that is Parkinson's disease where there's a particular type of neuron that dies unusually rapidly, a lot more rapidly than most neurons in the brain. And 
the result is by old age, we've only got maybe three quarters as many as we had before. That's okay. We can cope with three quarters. But if you're unlucky and you're the type of person who loses those neurons a bit faster, then you may only have one quarter of your original set of those neurons by old age, and that's when you get Parkinson's disease. So that's one example. Uh, the other two types of cell-level damage are both examples of having too many cells rather than too few. And I classify them as two different types of damage because the type of reason how we get too many cells determines the most appropriate therapy for actually getting rid of the excess cells. Okay. One of these types of having too many cells is when cells are dividing inappropriately, when they're dividing when they're not supposed to. And of course, that's pretty much the definition of cancer. The other type of, of having too many cells is when they're not dying when they are supposed to. Well, that's a bit counterintuitive. People sometimes overlook that one, but it's actually very important, especially in the decline in the immune system with age. Cells get into a state where they're not working, and the body has mechanisms to cause those cells to commit suicide and go away, but those mechanisms don't work. The cells are basically resistant to the uh, signal telling them to commit suicide. Okay, so those are the cellular level ones. Okay. Now, the molecular level ones, there are four of them. Two of them happen inside cells, and two of them happen in the spaces outside cells. So, in, the, in other words, between cells. So, inside cells, we have, first of all, accumulations of mutations in a special part of the cell called the mitochondrion, which is the place where the chemistry of breathing happens, where oxygen is combined with nutrients to extract energy from those nutrients. And it turns out that that process of extracting energy from nutrients is quite hairy, chemically, and things go wrong. And at a low but non-trivial level, toxic molecules, free radicals, are produced by that process. Those free radicals do a whole bunch of damage. It turns out that free radicals can also be, be generated on the surface of the cell if the cell isn't working. And mitochondrial mutations are, have, have a, seem to have a big role in all of that. So that's another big one then the other one inside the cell is simply garbage, waste products, molecules that the cell is creating as a side effect of going about its normal business. And for whatever reason, the cell does not have any mechanisms for either breaking down or excreting those molecules. So that means the molecules accumulate in the cell, and just in the same way that if you don't take your garbage out of the house for a month, your house doesn't work so well. Similarly, eventually, the cell gets clogged up with garbage. So that's an important thing. That's a driver of, for example, atherosclerosis, the number one killer in the Western world. It's caused by the inability of white blood cells to process oxidized cholesterol. So then if we move outside the cell to the spaces between cells, the first type of damage, again, is simply molecular waste products. Uh, there's material called amyloid that accumulates in various organs during old age, especially a, a well-known example is in the brain in Alzheimer's disease. There are things called senile plaques, which are made of amyloid in the spaces between brain cells. Now, the reason that that uh, category is listed separately, again, is because the way to get rid of this damage is different than the way to get rid of, damage that of garbage that accumulates inside the cell. Okay, so we're down to number seven, the last type of damage, and that, as again, is again outside the cell, but in this case, it's not garbage. It's changes to the molecular structure of long-lived molecules. So it turns out that there are quite a lot of really long-lived molecules in the spaces between cells. They form a structure, a kind of lattice, called the extracellular matrix, which is responsible for the physical properties of our tissues, especially for their elasticity, which they need sometimes. Best example here is the artery walls, the major arteries. They have to be elastic in order to effectively buffer the more fragile parts of the, of the circulation, the capillaries, from the pulsation of the heartbeat. And uh, if the elasticity is diminished, then you get high blood pressure. And that happens, of course, in the elderly, and it has loads and loads of health, health consequences, as everybody knows. So the question is, what's happening there? And actually what's happening is that random chemical bonds, chemical linkages are formed between proteins in the extracellular matrix. And they're formed in a random way, and they basically just stiffen the extracellular matrix. They make it less elastic. So those are the seven types of damage. Okay, so, so it's fantastic. So I've identified these seven types of these molecular and cellular damages, and they, they're caused by what, you know, everyday essential processes, right? So 
the approach then, let's talk about the approach in, in some aspect. Is it a targeted approach to each of the seven or is there a way to combat this in a more global way? Uh, so walk us through the, a little bit in the lab and, and what the approach is after you've identified the potential causes of damage. Sure. Yes. As I mentioned earlier, the reason why we have this particular classification is because for each of these types of damage, there's only one generic therapy that we think should be needed. So let me go through those seven therapies. For cell loss, cells dying and not being automatically replaced, the answer is well known to everybody on this program, listening to this program, I'm sure, namely stem cell therapy. That's what stem cell therapy is. You put new cells into the body that have been prepared into a, into a state where they will divide and differentiate to replace the cells that the body is failing to replace on its own. So in other words, you're repairing that type of damage. If we go to cancer, then of course there are many different approaches that people are taking to eliminating cancer. We are pursuing a particularly ambitious and elaborate one that involves controlling the ability of cancers to extend the ends of their chromosomes, the telomeres. I can go into more details about that later if you like. Then sure. if we uh, look at the third type of damage, uh, having cell cells that we have too many of because they're not dying, you can encourage cells to die. You can basically use drugs or more probably gene therapy to introduce toxic molecules inside these cells so that they die anyway. Of course, you have to do this in a rather careful, specific way so that, they only, so that you only kill the cells that you want to kill. But that's what's happening now. That's what we are developing. So then for the molecular stuff, well, the first one was um, mitochondrial mutations. And here the approach that we're taking is, again, very ambitious, but it's really the best bet, we think, at this point. The mitochondria doesn't have actually all that much DNA. It only encodes 13 proteins, whereas the nucleus encodes like you know, tens of thousands of proteins. But the really interesting thing is that the mitochondrion itself is constructed from more than a thousand proteins. So you might think, well, okay, if the mitochondrial DNA is only encoding 13 proteins, where are all the other genes for the other proteins? And the answer is they're in the nucleus, in the normal chromosomes, along with all our other genes. And there's a system that the cell has for transporting proteins encoded by those genes into the mitochondria, even though they're synthesized outside the mitochondria, right? So um, what we want to do is essentially co-opt that system for the additional 13 genes. We want to make backup copies of the mitochondrial genes and put them in the nucleus, modified in such a way that they use this system for getting the protein back into the mitochondria. All right, so now garbage. Garbage inside the cell. So, as I mentioned, the reason that garbage accumulates inside the cell is basically because the cell does not have mechanisms for breaking it down. If it had mechanisms for breaking it down, it wouldn't accumulate and it wouldn't be a problem. So, we want to augment the ability of cells to break things down. And the way we're doing that is by identifying genes in other species that encode enzymes that can break down these substances. And that turns out not to be very hard. If we look in the environment, we can find bacteria that are very, very versatile, that break down all manner of different things. And uh, indeed, we are able quite easily to find bacteria that can break down the things that we're interested in, that accumulate during aging inside cells. So what we do then is we identify the genes and enzymes that the bacteria are using to break down these substances. And then is the tricky part, step three, is we modify those genes so that we can put them in human cells and they still work. That turns out to be quite difficult because human cells are just very different from bacteria. But we can do it. And we've actually done that now in the case of atherosclerosis. Uh, the idea then, of course, is that the cell is no longer in a position where it can't break down this garbage. Can I just quickly just ask about the getting rid of the garbage, if you will? Is it that the cell in the human body is not capable of doing so, or is as we age, that process slows down or becomes defunct in some sort of aspect? The fundamental one is, what, is the first of those, that the cell, the cell, even in a young person, fundamentally lacks the ability to break down this particular substance. Okay. Now, as we age, you're absolutely right to suggest that in all of our uh, metabolism, things start going wrong, and that includes the things that we do automatically to repair damage as it accumulates. 
So there are certainly things that we are creating throughout life but not accumulating because we have mechanisms that break those things down. And some of those things do, at least, at least partly, accumulate actually in late life anyway, simply because the mechanisms for breaking them down are impaired by the accumulation of things that we could never break down. Okay, so we've got two types of damage left in the repair mechanisms. Now, the first one is the uh, accumulation of molecular waste products outside the cell. And in that case, what's going on, what, what we do to fix it is actually very simple. We use the immune system to get the stuff inside the cell. The reason why that's good enough is because the natural systems that we have outside the cell for breaking things down are far more primitive and less sophisticated than what we have inside the cell. So in other words, the stuff that accumulates outside the cell is overwhelmingly stuff that if it were just inside the cell, it would be toast. It would already automatically be going away. So that's what we make happen. We, we cause the immune system essentially to engulf this material and get it inside the cell and then it goes away perfectly happily. So yes, and the final one, this cross-linking that I mentioned, this loss of elasticity of the extracellular matrix. Here, what matters is these chemical bonds that are spontaneously accumulating. They accumulate mainly as a result of, the re of chemical reactions with sugar in the bloodstream. And we know what those chemical bonds look like. We know the chemical structures. And the good news is that those structures are very unusual, very different from structures that the body makes on purpose and that have a physiological role. So it's reasonable to suppose that we might be able to develop drugs or enzymes that would be able to attach to these crosslinks and actually break them, and thereby, of course, restore the elasticity of the extracellular matrix without those drugs having off-target effects that break other things. So let me ask you this question. You have these different categories, if you will, on these approaches, and you can systematically, I'm assuming then, and test or approach each one, each of the seven. Is there evidence to suggest that one or two are more severe in terms of the aging? And you know where I'm going with that? In other words, is the waste the major problem or is it truly a combinatorial approach and all are going to contribute to overall the aging? One wouldn't be enough, if you will. Yeah, I'm afraid it is the latter. We've got to fix them all. They all cause pathology, loss of physical and mental function around the same age. Okay. And that's no surprise, really, from an evolutionary perspective. You would expect that you know, we wouldn't have unnecessarily good damage repair systems or damage prevention systems. We would develop our, our metabolism in such a way as to keep any particular thing from killing us before everything else. And so this obviously being the stem cell podcast, we just focused a minute on the stem cell component. So really in the strategy here, if there's these seven types of damage, then this, the stem cell aspect really comes into the beginning when you were talking about kind of loss of cells, correct? I mean, so stem cells and aging wouldn't really have served to a have a pan effect on all of these processes. It would be as an, a, one approach to one of the cellular deficits, is that correct? That is correct, yes. I mean, we do have to actually qualify that a little bit because, the, as I mentioned, the accumulation of these types of damage does impair all of our various bodily systems. And those systems include the systems for repairing damage automatically that we have, through, we have in, in youth, that work well in youth. They also include the systems for preventing all types of damage including the ones that we can't repair after they've happened. Which means that if we repair one type of damage, then we will have a, a subtle, perhaps modest, but probably non-zero impact in slowing down the subsequent rate of accumulation of other types of damage, but only a modest effect. I see. Now, Aubrey, well, tell me this. What about, I imagine a lot of the work, the research lab work has done in rodent models and things like this. What about using stem cells and IPS technology to model aging in humans. So, for example, using uh, cells from progeria patients, patients who are, are very old, you know, from a very young age, or, or centenarians, people who live a long time and kind of, you know, making iPS cells and kind of using this as a way to test your hypotheses and these seven types of, of damages in a human system cellularly. Is, is that something that in this field is, is looking to do? Yes and no. So the thing about accelerated aging models, whether human models or laboratory models, is that they generally come about as a result of single problems. 
single mutations, for example, in one gene. And that means that even if the eventual pathogenic consequences are very broad, nevertheless, they fan out from an initial cause. And therefore, the best way to actually treat accelerated aging generally is to home in on that originating cause and try and fix that. And then the benefits also fan out. So people aren't very interested in treating progeria by fixing the damage that happens later on. They're interested in fixing it by fixing the gene. Okay. Whereas aging itself, of course, is very multifactorial, as I've explained. So uh, in terms of centenarians, though, that's a, a rather different question. Clearly, centenarians have lived an unusually long time, and there must be some reason why they've lived an unusually long time. In particular, we do know that, by and large, centenarians have had an unusually healthy life. In other words, the... They haven't just stayed alive in a frail state for a long time. They stayed alive in a healthy state for an unusually long time and went downhill later. So that's useful. What's not so useful is the fact that by the time they're centenarians, they have definitely gone downhill a lot. And so right. they learn very much from their metabolism that you couldn't also learn by studying normal 80-year-olds. What you can do, however, is study their offspring, for example, because their offspring will, of course, have a lot of the same genetic material that they themselves have, and yet they won't themselves be old. So they can be compared with, average, with typical people of the same age. And that certainly is being done. Fortunately, we're going to be compressed for time. And what I wanted to do in this in a shorter interview is give everyone a broad sense of what you're doing and, and, and kind of the concept so they can go and look you up and look up the research and go into it in more detail. And so I, I to kind of fill the arc, go to the arc and go towards the end here, I know people are probably thinking and want to ask, this sounds great, but what's a time frame that us as humans might see major advancements in anti-aging? And what does that mean by an advancement in terms of years? Is it years on life? Things like this. So can you extrapolate from the bench into the lab and into humans in a time frame? Sure. First of all, in terms of the magnitude of the effect, we are going to bring aging under complete control. That does, that's not to say that we're going to actually make these therapies 100% perfect at once. But because they are repair therapies and because we have the natural capacity to, withstand, to carry around a certain amount of damage without any significant functional impairment, that's why people don't go downhill until after middle age, that means that all we need to do is stay one step ahead of the problem, to improve the quality and the comprehensiveness of these therapies faster than the things that, that their imperfections are catching up with, if you like. So that's something that I've called longevity escape velocity, and I believe that that's an absolute certainty to occur as soon as we get the therapies we're currently working on to be effective, even though the current therapies themselves will probably only give us maybe 30 additional years of healthy life, those 30 years are going to be quite good enough to develop Sense 2.0 and then Sense 3.0 and so on. So then the question is timing of how long it's going to take. And of course we don't know because it's pioneering technology. It's always very speculative uh, when we ask these questions. But I would estimate at this point that we have a 50-50 chance of getting there within about 20 or 25 years. So that's not too bad. You know, that's in time for most people listening to this show. Here's the bad news, though. That prediction of 20 to 25 years is contingent on funding, in particular contingent on funding in the next few years, in the early stage work that needs to occur to get momentum going, to get credibility going, and so on to get people to really believe that it's only a matter of time before we get the whole job done. And at the moment, I would say that we're being slowed down by a factor of maybe three, by simply the critical, no, dire shortage of funds that we have. That's the big problem we have to deal with right now. And I would have to imagine, Aubrey, that it, that that funding is also contingent on people, especially wealthy people, recognizing aging as a world problem, as a major problem, because... When you follow big philanthropists, I don't see a lot of them recognizing that and throwing a lot of money towards aging. Yeah, wealthy people are very useful because they don't have an electorate. They can make their own decisions and just, you know, support whatever they want. Whereas you're not going to get the government to put serious money into this unless they feel that there are votes in it. And in other words, until the general public believes in it. And you're also not going to get industry putting serious money into it until they believe that they're going to make money like next year rather than 20 or 25 years from now. So, yeah, we absolutely do need wealthy individuals to step up to the plate a lot more. Let me emphasize, however, that we also need non-wealthy individuals to step up to right. the plate a lot more. Every dollar counts. Absolutely every dollar counts. 
And the more donors we have, the more you know it becomes a Me Too thing. It, it becomes something that is socially acceptable, socially uh, mandatory even, to actually get involved in and do one's bit. That's what we want. We want, and of course, it's not just donations we're talking about. We're also talking about any kind of advocacy, any kind of sure. involved. I mean, you know, having me on an interview, for example, that's that's a contribution. Things like that. And so I, the last thing I just want to ask, and um, this is maybe just something fun for me and, and fun for the for, for the audience listening. And I, I was reading somewhere, and I and I saw it on an interview that there was this gentleman who was going across the world in these pockets of the world where these people, um, humans live a lot longer. And so there was yeah. like eight or nine places. And so there were nine, yeah, nine places that was Dan Butner. He called them blue zones. Yes. Blue zones. That's exactly correct. And so they talked about their diet and they looked at their time, their life. So is there truth to that? I mean, is there a diet? I mean, I was reading about legumes, you know, beans and these things. And a lot of people that live a long time eat beans and legumes. Is there a, a kind of an anti-aging or a, a, I know that's a bit far, but you know, a diet that people can, uh, these antioxidants, is this, is this how hold some value in slowing down the process at least somewhat? There's certainly some truth in it. Yes. I mean, plenty of truth, but we must be very careful to look at the actual numbers, the actual magnitude of the postponement of aging and of death in these blue zones. It's only a couple of years relative to places nearby. And that is often overlooked. It's exciting, but it's not what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to achieve proper control of the biology of aging. Right. Like eating your beans is not going to make you live to 500 years old, for sure. That's right. Well, thank you so much for your time. He is Dr. Aubrey de Grey. Uh, would you mind giving a website that people can go to if they want to learn more and either contribute in some way? Please go ahead. Absolutely. Please go to sense.org, S for sugar, E-N-S for sugar, dot org. And yeah, please, absolutely. All the information you could possibly want is there. You can write to us. You can certainly, there's a nice, big, friendly donate button. And we would love to hear from you all. S-E-N-S dot org. He's Dr. Aubrey de Grey. Thank you so much for your time and have a lovely day. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. So that was awesome. I mean, so fascinating. I had so many more questions for Dr. de Grey, but obviously didn't have the time. But you can go uh, find him online. Go to his SENS.org. You can go check out his research, understand a little bit more about it. I guess really the question is like, if someone really gave you that option, would you live to a thousand? I mean, I guess I would, right? As long as I know there's going to be other people around, I would. But thinking about aging as a real problem is something that's, I think, a need to be a paradigm shift because I feel like we all view it as inevitable, it's just something we can't deal with. But if we really view it as our biggest problem in the world, then we could probably fix it and stop it, right? I mean, this is who we are as a country. We identify major problems and we go after it. It might take us some time, but uh, we're normally just limited by our resources, and that's clearly what he's saying. So really fascinating stuff. Thank you to Dr. DeGray. Thank you for everyone for listening. All right, everybody. So this is it. This is episode 62. We're going to have a break. We're going to come back stronger than ever. I'm going to rant something real quick, and then I'm going to sign off. My rant, real quick rant, is on cable companies. Yeah, I was just looking at my bill the other night, and I realized how much money I pay for cable, and I find it to be not only ludicrous and insane, but but just a, a, a ripoff. I mean, when did this happen? When did TV and internet start to have to cost you that much money? And the real sad part about it is you really don't have any other options. You know, like you're kind of forced into it. Everything is online at least, you know. So what I did then was I called it like downgrade because I don't need all these crazy channels. But even by downgrading, it's still ridiculously expensive. And so I think now what I'm going to start to do is cut the cord and do a lot more online streaming and things like this. But like, it's just really, really ridiculous. It it got me so hot the other night looking at this cable bill and going through it and being like, what is going on? And like, I tried calling to cancel. And do you know what that's like? You ever try call to cancel or downgrade your services? It's like they don't let you off the phone. They try to trick you into new packages. I mean, it's just really, really frustrating what they do. But you know, in the end, people need their TV. They need their internet. So they're going to, they're going to sign on. But I mean, what a disaster. Really, really what like a they they really have you by the you know what. There's really nothing you can do about it. So anyway, everybody, thanks so much. Please, please, please stay engaged with us. Follow us online. Follow us on Twitter. Go to stemcellpodcast.com. We will be back. We will not be gone for too long. And when we come back, we're going to be bigger and better than ever. This is the Stem Cell Podcast presented by Thermo Fisher signing off. And we will see you all on 63 shortly.